Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, the trickster makes an appearance to caution us against the dangers of taking ourselves too seriously. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. In popular humor, excrement is often regarded as a monument or souvenir. Everyone knows the joke about the man who wandered through labyrinthine passages looking for a hidden treasure, and who, after shedding all his clothing, deposited an excrementum as a last signpost for the journey back. In the distant past, no doubt, Such a sign possessed as great a significance as the droppings of animals to indicate a man's whereabouts or the direction taken. Stone monuments will later have replaced this more perishable memorial. So you may find yourself wondering at this moment, Did he really just open this episode with a quote from Jung about poop? Yes. Yes, I did. Now, before you start to worry about what you may be getting yourself into here, let me remind you that there is, in fact, a long-standing tradition in psychoanalytic literature of talking about poop. Freud, for instance, postulates an anal stage of development. And this stage has to do with the issue of controlling one's bodily functions and is connected with the development of a sense of independence. Jung, in his studies of alchemy, notes that dung is one of the images used to describe the prima materia, that raw substance from which the philosopher's stone is to be developed. The philosopher's stone, of course, is for Jung a symbol of his concept of the self. And so we could say that for both Freud and Jung, there seems to be a connection between poop and personality. To be honest, though, When Freud and Jung use bathroom language, it's not very, well, funny, right? I mean, they present their observations with all the sober seriousness of the clinician and the researcher. 
but every four-year-old knows that there are few things funnier than a fart. And it's not just four-year-olds, by the way. Shakespeare knew it, too. He was not above the occasional fart joke, like when he has the character of Dromeo in the play Comedy of Errors say, A man may break a word with you, sir, and words are but wind. I and break it in your face, so he break it not behind. Which, translated into contemporary English, might mean something like, some people are real gas bags when they speak. And of course, it would be hard to say which would be worse, wouldn't it? Having someone break wind in your face with their words, or break wind in your presence with their behind. Either way, if you found yourself sitting beside them on a plane, it would be a long flight. Now, to his credit, Jung at least acknowledges that excrement is often a subject of what he calls popular humor. Everyone knows the joke, he writes, about the man who wandered through labyrinthine passages looking for a hidden treasure, and who, after shedding all his clothing, deposited an excrementum as a last signpost for the journey back. Now, you'd be forgiven if you've never heard this joke that Jung claims that everyone knows. It is, after all, well over a hundred years old, and it's probably gone out of rotation at the comedy clubs by now. I haven't been able to track the joke down myself, but my own guess is that the punchline has to do with something like the man's discovery that where he had expected treasure, he simply ends up with his own excrementum, as Jung so delicately puts it. Hilarious, right? And if I'm right about this, then the joke as is often the case, is not only funny, and we'll have to take Jung's word for that, but it also contains some truth. I mean, it's true, isn't it, that so much of what we treasure in the end often amounts to nothing more than a big pile of waste, especially that cute little sign that we hung on the wall that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And we know this, of course, right? We tell it to ourselves every now and then when we finally get tired of all the stuff that we've accumulated and we say with a sigh of exasperation, look at all this crap. And this truth is hidden in our language too. It turns out that the Latin root of the word commodities, all those many things that we like to buy and sell, is related to that of the word commode, which, of course, is another word for toilet. On some deep, unconscious level, we recognize the excremental nature of so many of our commodities. We probably shouldn't be surprised that ours has become something of a disposable culture. And perhaps Freud was right when he linked the fascination with money to the infantile fascination with feces. 
But you see, now I've gone and done it. I've gotten all serious here, just like Jung and Freud did, when all I wanted to do was make a little light-hearted episode about flatulence and defecation. So let's see if I can get back on track here. It turns out that it's not that hard to find stories that deal with things like farting and other bodily functions. Of course, that's what human beings do, right? We tell stories about what it means to be human, both in the highest sense and in the lowest, the spiritual and the earthy, the sublime and the ridiculous. And many of these tales, as we might expect, seem to be played for laughs, or for the sake of deliberately challenging and even shocking our more proper and polite sensibilities. But every now and then, we can sense behind the silly and often unseemly details of some of these stories a little soul in the scat, a little wisdom in the waste, a little meaning in the manure. So here's a story from Korea that I think does just that, and it's known as the farting daughter-in-law, and it goes like this. A long time ago, there lived a daughter-in-law whose face turned yellow and appeared sick. Worried, the rest of the family asked her what was the matter, and she said it was because she had to hold in her gas. Her father-in-law told her it was okay and to go ahead, and the daughter-in-law urged, then I ask that dear father-in-law grab onto a column, dear mother-in-law the gate, dear husband the kitchen door, and dear sister-in-law the cauldron. Then she released herself, and the fart was so powerful that the house blew away, the father-in-law spinning his hands still on the column, the mother-in-law flying this way and that as she held on to the gate, her husband rocking and rattling as he gripped onto the kitchen door, and her sister-in-law being swept in and out of the cauldron. Her parents decided that they should kick out a daughter-in-law with such an unacceptably powerful fart. And she set out to return to her family, and the father-in-law accompanied her. On their way, they met a brassware vendor and a silk vendor who wanted to eat the pears on the tree to relieve their thirst, but the tree was too high, so they were at a loss. The daughter-in-law told them she would be able to get the pears for them and proposed a wager, upon which the two vendors promised to give her brassware and silk if she succeeded. The daughter-in-law once again made a fart of enormous force which made the pears fall and in return received brassware and silk. Her father-in-law realized that his daughter-in-law's powerful fart had a use, and he took her back to his family. 
So there you have it. Sometimes farting can be fruitful. Sometimes those things that at first glance seem to be unacceptable or undesirable or even embarrassing turn out to have a hidden or unexpected value. In the story, the daughter-in-law's unbelievably powerful fart, which initially had cost her her place in the family, is eventually recognized as being something useful. Her gas literally bears fruit. It makes the pears fall off the tree so that the vendor's thirst can be satisfied. And this, in turn, earns her a reward of brassware and silk. The daughter-in-law's powerful wind is reminiscent of that of the trickster figure of the Winnebago people, Wakchunkaga. In one of the Winnebago creation stories, according to the scholar Lawrence Sullivan, Wakchunkaga scatters all living creatures across the face of the earth with an enormous fart, which leaves them laughing, yelling, and barking. Again, we find something of value coming from something so coarse. Or, to put it another way, out of that which appears to be objectionable comes something in the service of life. Such farts, it turns out, can be creative. They may bear fruit. They may even, in some way, quench our thirst. And with this strange idea, we can't help but ask the question, what thirst is it that is bent by such stories? What is it exactly that this vulgarity serves? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, I would suggest that it boils down to something like this. It is important that we do not take ourselves too seriously. And when we do, our sense of ourselves and our world becomes more and more fixed and inflexible. We cling to our preferred self-image and grow intolerant of anything or anyone that does not reflect and affirm that image. In a sense, we become a prisoner of our persona. And sometimes everyone else does as well. And in all of this, our access to the life-giving waters of authentic relationship becomes increasingly attenuated, and we may not even recognize what we have lost. Jung reminds us that, according to the philosopher Schopenhauer, a sense of humor was a divine attribute in the human being. And he goes on to add that it's this attribute by which one can maintain one's soul in freedom. In other words, a sense of humor keeps us from getting caught in the many subtle snares that result from our own self-consciousness. And so it is that when we start to take ourselves too seriously, we can expect a visit from the trickster. These mythological figures are troublemakers, 
disruptors and boundary crossers. Tricksters are morally ambiguous and often inappropriate. But as we've seen, they're also creators. What seems destructive in their behavior often turns out to be a clearing of the way for something new to happen, even if it's not what they intend. By shaking things up, tricksters get things moving when life has come to a standstill. When the goddess Demeter was in mourning for the loss of her daughter Persephone, she caused a great famine on the earth. Nothing would move her from her distraught state. At one point, an old nursemaid named Babo does a comic dance for Demeter and flashes her genitals at her. And this makes Demeter laugh, which in turn gives her the spirit to resume her quest. There is, apparently, a spirit of life in what is body and undignified. Humor, by the way, is indispensable for the symbolic life. In fact, I would go so far as to say that one cannot practice the symbolic life without a sense of humor. Symbols themselves proceed through humor. That is, they wink at us, right? They play with us. They say one thing when they mean another. They invoke surprise and delight in us when we catch a glimpse of their secret meanings. We could say that symbols do not take themselves too seriously, and so neither should we. If we do, we start to concretize them, to literalize them, and then we're on the road to fundamentalism of one kind or another. Symbolic consciousness must always stay open, must always remain indicative and not descriptive, or worse, prescriptive. This is what differentiates symbolic knowledge from conceptual knowing. As the philosopher Raymond Panikkar writes, concepts cannot put up with humor since their ideal is to be univocal. Symbols, on the other hand, are polysemic and not only allow manifold interpretation, but require a certain non-attachment to the symbol itself, lest it become an idea or a concept. We can play with symbols. When a symbol becomes hardened into a concept, it becomes something we possess, a thing that we know, as opposed to an intimation of the great mystery of life. When we take symbols too seriously, when we lose the sense of play in the symbolic life, then we fall back into taking ourselves too seriously, too. Humor allows for humility. It makes us receptive to the new, the unknown, the possible. It makes us open to wonder and awe. Most importantly, it makes us open to the other, both within and without. Of course, humor doesn't necessarily mean 
fart gags. It can certainly be more refined than that. Still, at the same time, maybe one of the reasons that the trickster is so given to bathroom humor is that poop, in a sense, is the great leveler. Sometimes we need something that can pierce through our self-regard, our pretensions, our preciousness. In our earthiness, we are relatable and accepting. And isn't it true that it's a sign that we have entered into a new level of intimacy in our relationships when we stop trying so hard to hide our farts from each other? Now, needless to say, all of this can go too far, right? Getting comfortable with each other can easily tip over into being inconsiderate of one another. We always have to use some measure of judgment and restraint. It won't do to identify with the trickster. The point is not to impose ourselves on others, nor is it about trying to get others to lighten up which is really just a cover for holding on to our own self-importance. We should always remain mindful of the tendency to substitute projection in the place of self-correction. Now, obviously, I've gone and gotten serious again. But here's the thing. Life is serious. Sometimes it's deadly serious. Sometimes it feels like it's more than we can bear. And it's because of this that it's crucial that we are able to differentiate between what is really serious and what is really not. And this is where the trickster can help us. There's a scene in the movie Meatballs starring Bill Murray that I consider to be one of the greatest inspirational speeches ever committed to film. Two rival summer camps are holding a two-day Olympics. Naturally, the camp of rich kids is totally demolishing the camp of misfits and losers. After the first day of competition, the misfit campers are all sitting around feeling depressed and defeated, the spirit having completely gone out of them. And it's at this point that Bill Murray's character stands up and delivers his speech. It's a completely ironic speech, of course, and it ends with him getting everyone to start chanting. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter if we win or we lose. It just doesn't matter. And soon everyone is on their feet and laughing and chanting. And in this way, they are released from a false sense of the importance of the situation. And because they're freed from having to care about the outcome of their Olympics, they can participate in them with enthusiasm and even joy. And this spirit carries them to victory. Now, it's silly. 
and it's stupid. And it's totally true. Sometimes it's helpful for us to be reminded that every now and then, it just doesn't matter. Now, to be clear, the message of the trickster is not that nothing matters. It's not about nihilism. The message, rather, is that it's only when we learn what just doesn't matter that we are freed to discover what does. Or to put it the other way around, because some things matter so much, others, we realize, matter not at all. Ultimately, Tricksters, with all their coarseness and their chaos, remind us that it's good to laugh. They show us that it's okay to be human, and they bring us back down to earth when we've begun to take ourselves too seriously and to imagine that we have somehow risen above all the muck and the mess of life. And so... I want to end here with a blessing. And this is actually a version of a blessing that was handed down to me from my ancestors. And it can serve as our takeaway for this episode. And it goes like this. Wherever you may go, wherever you may be, always, let your wind blow free. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.